Welcome to Making Comics, a podcast exploring the comics process from two different perspectives. I'm Keith Foster, a managing partner of Invader Comics and the writer of Kadoja and Three Protectors. And I'm Scott Loss, the creator and artist of The Second Shift and Wanders of Milsonda for the Accidental Aliens. Okay, you know the deal. We, I mean, we, we, we should just we should just say, and I'm drinking this. Right, <laughs> you know? yeah. So what, what do you got? What do you got, kid? I'm back, baby. Kirkland yeah. Hard Seltzer. It's been far too long. Okay. Uh, and uh, we're <laughs> rocking Black Cherry today. So turns out I had a couple left. I've been out of them for a while, but we have a storage like a storage closet on our balcony because like our our space in our two bedroom condo that's not a lot so we have a lot of stuff stored out in the closet there and so i was clearing it out and boom i came across a uh, a couple of cans of kirkland hard seltzer and i was like oh this is excellent it's been so long since i've had them i was like craving one so um you know threw them in the fridge a couple of days ago and it's nice and chilly so i'm excited to get back to it yeah all right well it's interesting because uh, you are doing that, and I, so Adroit Theory, made another one of their uh, G.I. Joe-themed hazies with the lactose in it. Oh, that's cool. And yeah, so it's one of the ones where they, they come through Tavor, and uh, and I haven't ordered through Tavor in a while, but I saw this come up, and uh, the second I did, I was like, okay, well, it looks like I'm going to be putting an order together this month. So, uh, so yeah, man, uh, this one is called Rage. And uh, it is, it's got hops in it, and I'm not even going to go that fancy because I'm not that fancy, but it is 10%, which is a, a strange downgrade from my last couple of weeks of just going Shaquille O'Neal level paint hard, you know, in terms of what I was doing. But, uh, you know, 10% is no joke, but uh, it, it's, it, you know, I'm getting back into the warmer months again. I mean, it was 85 degrees Fahrenheit today. That is not, that does not... Put, make me want to drink a stout in any condition. Um, so I'm not. So I'm drinking this instead. So hazy IPAs are, are coming back into the fold. And I hopefully I'll have another cold night or two because I still have a stout or two that I want to knock out before the season's over. Nice. Yeah. And then as always, the Kirkland Hard Seltzer is only 5% um, as are most seltzers. So uh, it's nice and refreshing. I do enjoy these. It's funny because the black cherry is usually my least favorite, but I haven't had one in such a long time that this is quite enjoyable. You were probably also tainted by that bitch-ass seltzer that you had a couple weeks ago that you're probably not drinking any of, right? I I almost grabbed a can of that today, and uh, or for, t- for tonight's recording, but uh, I was like, nah, I'm going to go with the Kirkland. Yeah, know. I'd actually like to taste something <laughs> instead of not <laughs> tasting anything. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay, man. So you get to start this week. So what was the first thing you did this week? Last week's status update was my PDFs were off to the printer, and my printer gave me a good turnaround time. Well, guess what? That turnaround time was amazing. I gave him the PDFs on a Monday. Uh, on Wednesday, he said he'd be sending the books out, and on Friday, they showed up at my front door. So the books are in, uh, issues 10, 12, and the Drawtober Ash Can for 2021. Those all showed up, and I've basically been packing like a mofo since those things came in. So Mm. just trying to get everything together, see what needs to go out, see what I have left over. Um, It's not an exact number count that I do when I'm, I'm doing these Kickstarters. So I like to have a rough estimate of what, of how many books I'm getting. So, you know, let's just pick a number. Let's say I have, you know, a hundred backers or something like that. And 
let's say 25 to 30 of them are digital, um, I'll minus those and then I'll kind of do my rough estimates from there. It's like, okay, well, I need to order X amount of this this issue and that issue and this ash can. So um, I did my rough numbers and, and that goes for the special edition covers as well, the Kickstarter exclusive covers as well as the variant covers. And I'll do a rough estimate and I'll do a couple over whatever that tier count is. So I just kind of have them. Uh, number one, I like collecting my own comics as well. I like to have at least one or two copies of every issue that I've ever done. And that includes the special variant covers. And then I also like to have a couple of extra just for uh, add-ons for, for future Kickstarters. So mm -hmm. it's just like these Kickstarter exclusive covers that I'm doing. So the catch on that is, yeah, you can back the Kickstarter and get and guarantee yourself a Kickstarter exclusive cover. But once in a while, I'll have a couple of extra. And that will go to someone who actually looks through the add-ons and goes, oh, shit, they have... He has an extra copy of this issue. I missed this on his. I missed this last Kickstarter. Let me grab it. And it's like a super yeah. limited number, like two to five at the very most. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And that's cool. It's always nice to have this final arc to it, right? You get the books in. They look great. All this work that you've done is now a physical thing. And uh, getting close to sending them out and, of course, keeping a few for yourself and then selling through the rest. Yeah, um, I was going through my variant cover box because there were some add-ons, and I was like, okay, they want they added one of this on. So I was going through that box, and uh, I came across the very rare uh, Bernie Mittens variant cover hmm. for uh, issue eleven. So that one is super duper rare. I think I only made three to five copies of that because I got okay. I think only like three people backed the tier, and then mm -hmm. I think I got two extra. I think one of the extras was thrashed. And then so was there, there was only one extra available copy. So that obviously that one's going to be mine. But uh, yeah, that'll be interesting. You know, once this book takes off and everyone's just like, what the fuck is this Bernie Mittens cover? Fuck? Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of interesting because you're... So we might as well segue into my first thing. But before actually, before we segue into the first thing, we should mention that by the time this airs, Scott and I have done our Amazon Prime watch party for a kung fu film and uh and boy did it go great hey remember that funny thing you said a uh, little ways in i do but we can't say because it's super racist <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> and then there was that other funny thing that we said a little way further man it was a great time it was a great time so um so yeah that's in our rearview mirror now the Bernie Mittens variant um, ties into sort of my first thing, which is uh, all the work that I've been doing on the Three Protectors Kickstarter, which, of course, by the time this airs, has been going on for a week. And by the time, but we're recording this before it's even gone live. So I'm going through the final preparations. We're probably going to submit it to Kickstarter tomorrow. Given the fact that we've done a few of these, uh, the turnaround is anywhere from like 20 minutes to three hours. So hopefully this one continues to be smooth. I put in all the basics. This is a great time to mention for people submitting Kickstarters, by the way. I can't remember if we've mentioned this little nuance before. If you're submitting your Kickstarter, it doesn't have to be final. What it has to have is all of the boxes checked that Kickstarter people are looking for. And Scott, you can add to this. But as far as I'm concerned, the important things are obviously the, the infrastructure stuff like bank account, your funding goal, the title, you know, a, a logo image. But here's the thing. They don't really care about what the image is and they don't really care if you have a video or not. So on that, on the first bit, it's really just the basics of the name, you know, who you are. 
Is your bank account verified? And what is the funding goal? Going forward, it's important for you to actually have the tiers entered as tiers in the Kickstarter itself. You don't even have to have all the tiers, but as minimum, you should have 80% of all the tiers you plan to do if for some reason you just don't want to put the information on these final two tiers. Um, And then what you really need on the last page is you need the story, and ideally that story needs to be as good as possible with art and with all those things. And then almost more important to Kickstarter than you is the risks and challenges part. So as a creator, I think I can speak for a lot of the people listening right now when we say that the story and the art and all that stuff is what's important to us. And what's not important is the risks and challenges. Kickstarter is the reverse. They sort of don't care about your story. You know, like you could put a few lines of story and one piece of art in there. And if your risks and challenges are fine, then you're good to go. Um, So while I don't recommend people doing this as a habit, it does come in handy if you're 70, 80% of the way through and you just want to get the essentials to Kickstarter so they can approve it. Because once they can, once they approve it, you can still edit it. You can edit a whole lot of things and you can add graphics, you can add descriptions, you can do so many things. So um, the basics for, for the Three Protectors Kickstarter are pretty much pretty much there. I need to do a little bit of writing after this, so I, I don't think this beer is going to hit me too hard in the head, but um, a little bit of writing should should get me there. Yep. Um, what Keith just said there is very important. And also, if this is your first Kickstarter, don't try to submit it the day of your release. Um, because if this is your first project, there is more than likely a process that they have to go through. They have to go and make sure fund you, uh, like make sure your bank account is correct and all of this, all of those extra things. They need to verify a lot of stuff if this is your first Kickstarter. The more Kickstarters you do, the quicker the turnaround time is. Like Keith said, you know, 20 minutes, almost sometimes instantly, uh, you know, a, a few hours. So, but uh, one thing I'll, I'll, it's a bit of an amendment to what, what Keith said there is, I recommend you getting your project approved as soon as possible. So let's say your your date is the first, whatever month that is. I, I suggest you guys submit to Kickstarter a week before just so you know it's ready to roll because you don't know what's going to come up. Like I said, if this is your first or second, there might be some verification problems that occur and then you had it in your head that, hey, I'm releasing it on the first but it's not going through. So if you mm-hmm. do it a week before, your project's approved. You know, like you have your, there's a, the very first page you do, there's a start date. Okay, I'm like, I want my Kickstarter on the first. If it's the 25th, they're not gonna care about that. They're just gonna go, okay, let's go through the process. And okay, everything's there, everything checks out. All right, you're approved. So who knows how long that would take. So it's just a nice little peace of mind for you to get that done well beforehand. Um, but everything else Keith said, I totally agree with. You don't have to have all of your reward tiers. Honestly, you can have three reward tiers because there are Kickstarters that have very limited reward tiers, so they don't care about that. Um, you can continue to edit, like Keith said. You can have 25 Kickstarter tiers. So if you put up three, that checks that magic uh, green box on the top of your screen when you're going through the process for the Kickstarter people. And uh, uh, my last Kickstarter didn't even have a video. I, I didn't even mm-hmm. put one up. I was like, you know what? I've done enough of these. Um, I actually stopped. Me personally, when I look at Kickstarters, I stopped watching the videos. I don't even watch them anymore. So I was like, I don't watch them. I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't watch them. And and to Keith's point, what the most important thing to someone who would back a Kickstarter is, 
your story and the art. Um, number one for comic books and graphic novels, I go to the campaign and I look at the art. If the art is bad, I don't even care what the story is. I'm, I'm not backing the project. So make sure you have a lot of images of the art, not just covers. Uh, me personally, my number one rule is if there is no interior art represented on the Kickstarter, more than likely that interior art is no good. So I am not going to back it. Um, that's just my rule. It, you could be on a completely different uh, mind frame. Like I know some friends that they're just about the writing. Like art is just whatever to them. If it's passable, it's good enough for them as long as the story's good. I'm reverse, um, like to a degree. Like let, let's not get crazy. Like if the story's horrible, I'm probably not going to continue. But there is a point where the art is so good. Sometimes you just kind of go, the story sucks, but man, look at this art. Yeah. I mean, I'll, a lot of the Kickstarters I have recently backed have art that is better than the story. Um, and <laughs> I mean, that it happens, right? Because you can't read the story as part of the Kickstarter. That's what you back the project for. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that that's uh, so what Scott said holds there. Um, we are, let me think about this, technically five, six days before the Kickstarter right now. I expect that we're going to submit it in some kind of form tomorrow, which is five days in advance, which for people that have done Kickstarters, much less successful Kickstarters before, all the infrastructure get, stuff gets out of the way and you should be okay. Um, so to, to go back to the first thing of this Kickstarter and to Scott's Bernie Mittens thing, I'm playing with this idea and I don't know if it'll even happen with this Kickstarter, but it's a pretty fun thing to mention. And you know what? people are going to steal it steal it but like it's fine because i'm stealing it from someone else the thing that i'm stealing from is i don't think i've mentioned it on this podcast but something i am absolutely obsessed with is the wu-tang clan record once upon a time in shaolin are you familiar with this record scott mm -hmm. how many copies exist oh is that the single copy that was sold that's the one yep. yes that's the one um, one. So for all the people that don't know out there, one copy of this thing exists. It, they, they got like a, a, a silversmith to create like a box and it's just a CD. It's not even an LP, but to create a box for this record. Um, there is an entire book, um, on this. I can't remember what it is, but God, I love the book. I don't think it's called once upon a time in Shaolin, but it might be, it's, it's something very close to that. So if you're interested, look up Wu-Tang Clan, Once Upon a Time in Shaolin book, and that might even be the title of the book. If not, um, it's close. It is a fantastic book, dude. It details the whole story of it from its creation to the person who actually got involved with it, who's like a fine art house broker, to the fact that it ended up uh, getting, you know, so their whole point was, let's sell it for one copy and make it, I think Riz's phrase was, we want to make it like the scepter of an Egyptian king. There's only one copy in existence, right? And uh, and they sold it to the highest bidder. And what they didn't know at the time was that the highest bidder was, do you remember this, Scott? Yeah, it was the guy that was, um, he had the rights to some kind of medication. Yeah. And he was just jacking people on the price of that, right? Yes. Like he was screwing yes. Martin people Shkreli. over. Mm -hmm. Yep. Martin Shkreli. Um, so yeah. So that whole thing was crazy. And, and then there's a story about that. It was just, it was pretty bonkers. So it's, it's a bonkers story. It's one of my favorite nonfiction stories ever. Um, that one is amazing. And like, it's a nonfiction book that just reads like a fiction book because of all the twists and turns in it. So highly recommended. 
But it's something that I've been playing with for a Kickstarter because I would really like to do that. I just haven't found the right thing to do it with, you know. And um, so a, a single copy thing, a, a one item thing, like I'm fascinated by that idea. And I may end up enabling in this car- in this Kickstarter or in every Kickstarter to that point because I think it's cool to have one high end tier that's just one single thing, whatever that thing is. Yeah, I had a, I thought I might even ran it by you on the pod or just in person. Who knows? Um, but I had it on my last Kickstarter. It was, I will draw you on the cover. Yeah. And it will, this will be your comic. You will be on the cover. You got to be a hero or a villain. Um, and we'll figure it out. We'll do the cover together. Um, I'll let you, you know, help kind of guide me on what you want your character to be doing. If not, I'll just, you know, run it myself and boom, that, that book will exist. You will have one copy. I will have one copy. That will be the, those will be the only copies in existence. I'm just such a fucking weirdo that I know I need to have a copy myself. Um, And I don't know if that ruins the whole aspect for the person potentially backing that tier. Uh, But fuck them. It's it's my reward tier. I want to have a copy too. So um, yeah, I've, I've definitely toyed with that idea and I even put it up. I think, um, I can't remember how much it was. It might've been like a hundred, a thousand bucks or something like that. Yeah. Uh, something crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I'd I, I'm thinking of doing something like that for this, but I got to think of the right thing. I have an idea, but we can talk about it offline. So anyway, that's, that's the sub story that's interesting within the main story, which is so much work is happening on three protectors. It's this, it's that it's, I created the graphics over the weekend. It's a lot of back and forth with Mike and Kevin from invader. It's back and forth with Martin on the video, which I just approved. Um, and we're just, we're going to go ahead and submit the video, even though Martin has the time code prevalent on it. Cause big whoop you know and uh, and we'll just keep going with it so uh so yeah and if you're listening out there and you haven't backed it yet please check it out um i encourage you to take a look at it and ideally back it again it is kung fu in space i mean everything about that is is great <laughs> kung fu and space are both great things and when you put them together you got yourself a reese's peanut butter cup of comics you know so yeah man please check that out and uh, and back it if you like it Yep, I enjoyed that issue. I enjoyed the first installment. So yeah, definitely back that book, um, back that project. Uh, my second thing was basically kind of the only thing, um, only other thing that I've been doing all week. I've just been packing books. Oh, to hop back to my first thing. Um, yeah. I am halfway done with, oh no, I am two thirds done with packing and shipping out the Kickstarter rewards. So I sent out, um, a third today, and then I have already packed uh, the the second third uh, the, before with this podcast. So that's what I've been doing most of today and most of the week. Um, so the second thing, um, I shot this over to you and Gary uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we've just been so busy on the pod, I forgot to mention this, but I went to, I think it's, is it Barnes & Noble that's still open? Like all these bookstores always close. Yes, Barnes so & Barnes, Noble is the one that's in business. Yes, so Barnes & Noble. My my girlfriend, we're going to go on vacation soon, and she wanted to pick up a book. She was like, okay, I need something for the vacation. She picked up a couple of books. While I was there, I found uh, a book called Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals. And this was in a sales bin or, or their sales shelf for 15 bucks. It's like a 450-page book on dinosaurs. And if you guys are following along, Wanderers and Melisande, it's anthropomorphic dinosaurs versus humans. So I was like, you know what? This is perfect. I was flipping through it. There was another contender. There was a second dinosaur book. It was a hardcover. 
So that kind of had the edge just because it was a hard cover. I was like, oh, uh, I like the packaging here. But found the Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals book. Uh, it was double the size. It's a paperback, but it's uh, bigger in scale, the book itself. And it has a really cool feature where it gives you the scale of the animal compared to a human. And so for me, this is super important for wanderers. It's like, well, I kind of want to get this as close as possible with certain species that, you know, the humans come across in the book. So, um, and not only that, it kind of, it really helps to just have something to flip through to just get different dinosaurs. Like if you just need a different species, um, when you, you can Google all you want, if you're not that familiar with dinosaurs, you're not going to get a ton of variation there. Like people have a tendency to upload the same same dinosaurs we all learned about in preschool and so you see mostly that this book it shows so many different dinosaurs it's crazy so really happy with that purchase it was the best 15 bucks I, uh, my girlfriend ever spent she picked up the tab look at me um and uh, so uh, I'm in i love with a working girl that's There's right a song from the 1980s that's about that we gotta <laughs> we gotta love so pure as long as she pays the rent <laughs> that's right uh yeah i'm i'm uh what do you call that? Uh, she's my sugar mama. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been using that book. So I needed to do a couple of new species, and and she was just like, "Can I pick it?" And I was just like, "No." She's like, "Oh, why not?" And I was like, "Well, I know what I'm looking for, and I don't know that you know what I'm looking for. Like, I right. I don't know, but I know." And then I was like, "I need a dinosaur that would be like a hockey goalie." And then she flipped through the book, and she's like, "What about this?" And I'm like, "Fuck, that's." That's like a perfect hockey goalie. Yeah. So it's I was a like, goalie sore. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah. It was weird that it, that was the name. It was so, weird that like at that scale back in prehistoric times, dinosaurs walked around with hockey masks on. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually what, what the exact example was, um, I said, well, I, I want a prehistoric dinosaur that would be like a goalie. And she said, what, like a turtle? And I was like, fuck. Yeah. That's that's the perfect <laughs> get out of my fucking head. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's exactly right. So she was going through and she was just got her post-its out and she was just tagging the pages and she found a, a couple of really cool ones. Um, so when you read issue three of Wanderers, you'll see which goalie we picked there. It's, it's very funny. Um, so, yeah, I've been working on that. And I wasn't doing the Slack method previously because the first few pages were easy. So doing it now and man my process has sped up like crazy uh the other day i knocked out three panels just start to finish just knocked them out and uh it's just using that slack method you know find the panels that you've laid out so lay out your whole issue find those panels that are speaking to you in that moment whatever the day whatever the time is look over the panels and go that's the panel i want to do and when you do that method you're constantly moving forward you're constantly in motion, there is no lag. There's no grinding through a panel because you don't feel like doing it, but you're just trying to finish it. So um, in the beginning start of this process, it really speeds it up. And uh, maybe towards the end, that's where you slow down. You know, if you, yeah, if you're, it's, uh, it's this, yeah, it's because it's the snakes and Pee Wee Herman. Right. Right. It's just, oh shit. I got to draw this fucking panel. I don't want yeah. to. Yeah. Eventually you got to grab the snakes and bring them out of the burning lab. But, yeah. um, you know, there are days where, you're feeling resilient, you're feeling tough, you're feeling you're feeling strong, and you tackle those those pages, those panels that are the issue. And sometimes that happens with me. Some days it's like, hey, I actually want to draw backgrounds today. So let me tackle these and let me tackle as many as I can 
before I get bogged down later on with a ton of panels that I uh, background panels I don't want to do. Yeah, man. And I can totally relate on the writing side because while I don't have the foresight in editing my novel to use the slack method, like the thing about a novel is that you can't jump ahead to page 22 from page six. That's a really dumb, dumb ass idea. Because if you jump ahead to page 22 and then go back to page 7, you might write something that's a modification in page 7 that makes page 22 totally irrelevant. You know, like if if on page 22 you had your lead character on the golf course and then on page 7 you decide that a fire hydrant goes off in their face and affects their right arm, then they're probably not going to be golfing 15 pages later anymore. So that's why novels, when you edit them, they almost have to be linear from the beginning and, uh, and, and you have to work your way through it, you know? So like you, I get to those points in the novel where it's like, I don't want to fucking write this, you know, for me, for you, it's about trying to keep those snakes in the pet store as far away as possible and just doing something else I like. I'll save the fluffy kittens, whatever it's going to be. For me, I try to turn that on its side a little bit and say, okay, well, why don't I want to write this? In a lot of cases, it's because the scene isn't doing enough anyway. So let me make this fun. Let me try to figure out how to make this scene better so it's the kind of scene that I want in the novel and I'm not dragging. So the nice thing about that from a writing point of view is, if you don't want to write it, you are telling yourself something. You are telling yourself that the scene is not good enough. And now it's up to you to figure out how to how to make that scene fun and how to make that page fun in comics or that issue fun or whatever it is and turn that scene that you didn't like into one of your favorite scenes. Have you ever done this method? And, and I've heard about it. I don't know how many people implement it. Have you ever tried working backwards where essentially you know the beginning, you know the end, and then maybe there's something in the middle. So you kind of have your skeleton of the story or the benchmarks in place in the story. So you kind of write to those points. Is that a process that you've ever utilized or am I just making shit up? No, no, I, I don't think you're making it up. I think you're synthesizing some stuff that we've talked about before, you know, or stuff mm. that you've heard elsewhere or stuff that's come up in your conversations with other people. So for me, I'm not going to say writing backwards works, but I'm just going to go back to a familiar refrain through the episodes here, which is this idea of it being a video game world that I'm not writing backwards, but basically there are these checkpoints in the story that I know are out there. And now it's up for the characters to organically get to those things so that the story can kind of hit a quote save point like you'd have in a video game and then move on to the next big thing that's going to kind of drive forward. So I can't say that I write backwards. There are definitely instances in novels and in comics where I write backwards. But that generally happens when you think of something cool later in the story. And then you got to figure out a way to put it upstream in the story so it doesn't feel like you A, pulled it from your ass or B, pulled it from the holodeck, C, you know, however you want to say this, right? Chekhov fired a gun that you never put there. So with comics, that can be a little trickier. With novels, it's actually easier because you can just go back and edit it right there. With comics, comics are very time consuming. So odds are, if you're on page 100 and you need to go back and make a change on page six, you're fucked. 
because not only have you probably done page six, you've probably released it as a single issue, especially if you're an indie creator. And if you're an indie creator that's just doing graphic novels, then props to you, man. You know, like for me, I even though my stories are graphic novel based, I like doing single issues. It's financially intelligent to do single issues just so you can have those touch points instead of just slaving away and spending a whole lot of money over a year and a half without getting any of it back without and without engaging fans. You know, you just never know when people might forget about you and you don't want that. Yeah, my buddy Mike Kingston actually does that uh, business model. So he does the comic book Headlocked. It is uh, very popular in the wrestling comic community. And, uh, you know, he's a hell of a writer. He's worked with WWE. So, um, but that's been his business model. He did he did the individual issues, I think, for the first two trades. And then after that, he goes, fuck it, I'm not doing it anymore. He goes, I always get stuck with, like, all of these random copies of two, three, four. And they're just sitting there doing nothing, eating up space and revenue. Like, it's like, I, I spent this much money on them and no one's buying them and everyone just buys the trade. So fuck it. I'm just going to do the trade. His story's a little bit different, however, though, because his are almost a anthology series, every single episode, every single trade paperback. So it's not just one character. You're following a bunch of different wrestlers. So he gets different creative teams to draw each of those stories. So it's not like he's waiting on just one person to draw the whole thing. It's like he has multiple artists drawing the issue so or the, the mm-hmm. trade paperback, so it moves a little quicker. So that's where you and I would be at a disadvantage. Um, we, we don't have the luxury of having... Well, well, potentially you could. But, you know, for continuity and of the art's sake you you'd rather not do that right yeah. like have the one artist but yeah. um yeah so he can have you know five different artists working at the same time to create this trade and then so that kind of cuts down his turnaround time whereas you and i it's like well we're going from convention to convention and we want to have something new we need that engagement and that's what those exactly. single issues do it's just like if if everyone was waiting on me to do a trade like who knows when the next convention I would go to with new product would be. So exactly. I need I need the single issues to stay relevant um, in the indie comic scene. Like every time I show up, you can't just be peddling this one comic book that you have for like two years. That's not going to cut it. You're eventually you're going to need to sit down and do some new issues and get those out to the public as well. Exactly. Exactly. And you know I'm I'm gonna we're gonna save. I got a couple of things that are gonna I think a little different that we're going to talk about at the end of the episode. I got one thing that's going to be the same, or at least what people are used to. But anyway, I'm, I'm teasing the part where we're all just going to be spouting some incredible shit, which is in the future still. One thing that I did was for the fuck of it, I was like, I was, I was driving to pick up my kid today and I decided, you know what I want to do? I want to listen to episode zero of this podcast. Oh. I want to listen to a time capsule of us. It's by far the most listened to episode, which makes sense because most people who want to check out the podcast, you know, the origin story is great. It's the first episode we ever did. It's it's a great way to, you know, you can get grounded um, with both of us in that and then just check out any episode and be good to go. And there are a couple things that time, it, it is hilarious to listen back to one specific thing of that, which I'll get to later. 
So maybe I'll listen back to this someday and I'll think it's funny because I've become fucking Neil Gaiman and then people can just wait for my shit and I can just be like, no, I'm not doing single issues, bitch. I got, <laughs> I got, I got a boathouse. I'll do what I want and I'll just do full trade paperbacks, you right. know, but, uh, but odds are I probably won't even do that because we're artists, man. We, most of us like that gratification of getting something out there and talking to people and having something new for people. And you and I, you know, I'm not going to say we love doing shows, but maybe we do. And I like doing shows. I like getting out there and talking to people, you know. So you always want to have something new for somebody, um, no matter what your rate is. And, and it's always good to sh- do shows and have as much new possible shit as, as you can do. You know, it, it's interesting to think about our place in comics, like your place, my place in comics. Every time we release a new issue of one of our books, where are we? in the pecking order of the grand scheme of the comics world. So it's interesting because when I was wrestling, and this seems to be the theme for the last few episodes of me bringing up wrestling, but it's, it's the comparison is, you know, it's, it's there. So when I was wrestling, I never just, I didn't want to do. So in wrestling, there's a whole bunch of, I'm sorry. There's a whole bunch of different style of matches you can do. You can do like a quick eight minute match You can do a 15-minute match a little bit longer, or you can do these 20, 25-minute matches where you're telling this grandiose story in one match, right? It's an epic battle when you do these 20 to 25-minute matches. I loved doing eight-minute matches. That was one of my favorite things to do because Mm -hmm. I get in and I get out. I come in hot. I start the match fast. I hit it hot and heavy. We're just going boom, 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 boom the entire time. I'm fucking giving you a crescendo of action and pacing and I'll slow it down in the match. But I would say 75% of the match pretty fast, maybe 50, 50. Yeah. So that's just my style. That's something I love to do. I wasn't looking to stay in the ring for 20 to 25 minutes. I wanted to hit it hot and heavy. I wanted to punch the fans in the face and kick them on the head on the way out and then boom that but that was my personal bag that's what i enjoyed and i find when i do comics it's basically somewhere around the same like i did that five issue story arc for the first story of second shift and it was it was fun to do but i also found myself getting distracted and bored now i, I got a lot more time under my belt so but when i was when i've been doing these single issues i'm like this is it i love doing these but after like 3 or 4 i was like Okay, we need to we need to extend this. Like these need to go longer again. So, but I'm finding my own personal view of it is I like doing entertaining shit. So, it's something I'm going to come in and I'm going to I'm going to tell the story that I want to tell. So, whether it be a one-shot, a two-part or a five-part story, it's going to be action-packed. It's going to be eventful because that's the kind of comic I personally like to read. So, that's something I would like to, you know, to show the audience and to give the audience. Right. Right. Um, two things there. We'll see how well I remember both of them because, hey, the 10 percent still pretty strong. So it's good. I had a <laughs> I had a very light beer last night and I purposely ate a light dinner because I wanted to I wanted this to hit a little bit. So, uh, nice. so that's the move. Yeah, that's the move. It, 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 it worked well. Um, and so in terms of you know, it sounds like you're kind of talking about what you want your thing you're known for to be right. Like a, a quick slam bam you know like start out starts out like the first round of Hagler Hearns and then turns into some other fast shit and then resolves itself right so for me I think the thing that I'm trying to go for with comics 
is to have the kind of story where the second time you read it, you go like, oh, fuck, this was in my face the whole time, you know? Um, you know, Andrew Casa, who's a huge character in volumes three and four in Kadoja, he's in, if, if not the first, then the second issue of Kadoja. He's right there. And so what I'm hoping is that when people read and reread the comics, they're going to be like, oh, shit, look, he had planted that thing right there all along, you know? And that's something a lot of writers do. But that's something that I hope people appreciate that, like, you know, I, I hope you're paying attention because a lot of this stuff is intended to pay off. And uh, and yeah, it, it, I didn't put it there because I didn't want it to pay off. You know what I mean? Um, and as promised, I'd already forgotten the second thing. So <laughs> 10 percent. Yeah, 10 percent is hitting. 10 percent is hitting. Let me get to my second thing and then we can go on to our main topic. Um, I'll be quick about the second thing, but it's that I am cranking through Kadoja volume, well, let's just call it Kadoja Symphony of Madness, issue two. And uh, I think I got about four of the six scenes done. And I continue to go with this same idea of how I'm doing the scene, which is you just start with, here's what happens to this page. And I'm talking one sentence, the main thing that happens to this page. And so with, with where this is at this exact moment in time, about... 14 to 16 of the 22 pages, I think it's 14 of the 22 pages are fully done um, or maybe maybe 12 are fully done and then another couple are pretty much done. But I, what I'm doing is I start with the sentence and then on the days where I'm like, nope, I'm doing these pages today, I then turn that into a panel outline for the page. So three panels, five panels, six panels, whatever. And then much like I mentioned last week, I pick the thing that I want to just anchor the page on and then I write out that thing I write whatever the gnarly thing is that I need to get out of my goddamn head that's the hard thing that's going to set the tone for the page so again if there's a lot of action then action is going to be the thing I need to get out of the way first and then the dialogue will follow if it's a quieter scene where people are sitting around talking or there's supposed to be a lot of plot development dialogue is going to be the driver and the action is going to follow that so it's something that you just get a feel for after a while. And people out there that are listening, I imagine you have a feel for that too. It's just something that sort of comes naturally. You can tell the thing that's going to drive where the page goes. Do that thing first and the other thing will follow it. And you can fill it in however you want to complement the story from there. Were you able to get an outline or the, the starting pages to your guy, your, your artist? He, you mentioned March 1st was when he wanted to start. And today is March 1st. So not yet. He has not asked yet. So where I am right now is he hasn't asked. I'm probably going to send him a note if he doesn't ask like tomorrow. And the reason is because I'm probably going to have to delay it a little bit. And the reason is because Mike needs to edit it. Like my, my pages can't go to the artist without Mike editing it. And I just called him yesterday and I said, hey, historically, when you edit shit, the kind of fixes you make are dialogue based and character based. So what do you think about me sending these pages in parallel to you and the artist? And he said, that's historically what I've done. However, you never know when I'm going to buck history because whatever I see, I see. And whatever the editor is going to take a look at and think needs work, it's going to need work. So I'd caution you to do that. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm a couple days away from sending the final script off to Mike. Mike should be able to edit it pretty quick. 
He's, he's actually going on vacation, but he said, I'm not going on a vacation from the things I love. <laughs> I'm going on a vacation from the things that keep me from doing the things I love. And so I, he said, I'll have time to look at that script. I'll make a point of it. And then what I'll do in the meantime is I'll send it to the artist and say, hey, take a look at it. Let me know if you have any questions. It's still getting edited, et cetera. So, and then if he wants to start brainforming on the issue, because a lot of artists like doing that. A lot of artists like just taking a look at the script and then starting to have that thing form in their head. So I'm a couple days away from doing that. And then I'll, I'll probably do that in parallel and then have the final script to the artist, you know, this time next week, hopefully something like that. Nice. Yeah, man. So I think that's it for the week for us, right? Yep. So yep, we're going to get, me. all right. It's it for me too. So, so let's get to this week's main topic. Um, this week's main topic is that little dollop of not giving a shit. And I want to tell a few stories, Scott. And then I, I you know, feel free to jump in because this is how our text worked as we as we built up to this. But um, I, I will start this dialogue by saying something I love about music is when bands release a post-prime, I don't give a fuck record, Okay. And I'm going to give a couple of examples here. Hopefully people um, listening, somebody somewhere are fans of some of these bands. Or if you're not, you can check them out. But it's definitely the nuances that set them apart. So Living Color, the band that was a kind of hit mega pop stardom there with their debut album and their debut single, Cult of Personality. They had their first album, Vivid, and it was a huge hit based on Cult of Personality. Um, they then had a second record called Time's Up, where... That was when they were hyped to death by everybody. And they they had a, a lead single, but it didn't do that well. It was called Type, if I remember right. And it was it was a bit of a dud. And the record itself was a little too free-flowing and advanced to and and non-standard pop. Instead, you know, you can call it advanced, you can call it non-standard pop. It was more jazzy than anything. It really messed with time signatures. It was all over the place. It was very heady instrument um, musician based record but it didn't do that well people didn't get it and I think what happened is they fell out of favor of the label and then they released their third record Stain which was an I don't give a fuck record like it was heavier it was meaner by living color standards okay they didn't just turn into cannibal corpse overnight but it was mean (laughs) you know like and there's some songs in there that I think really dictate where they are they do a song an amazing song called Auslander um, that just sounds angry. You know, they, their lead single on the record is called Go Away. It sounds angry. They have a song called Nothingness that is like their ballad. It sounds lonely. You know, it sounds like like them reckoning with like commercial disappointment and maybe commercial failure after their second record. I love that record. It's by far my favorite Living Color record. Um, one more detailed example and then a few more rapid fire examples. Let's talk Gwar, party people. Gwar achieved a lot of notoriety with Scumdogs of the Universe, which was their debut record, I think in 89, if I remember right. And then they proceeded to have a couple semi-hits. You know, when I say hits, I mean hits in the metal community. Headbangers Ball played them. Everybody was like, holy shit, Gwar, this is so cool. They murder fake puppets on stage and then spit fake fluids in the audience and I can mosh to them and they're absolutely insane and they're funny in this weird, insane way. So they just kept cranking on and cranking on. And then um, at some point, 
I think people stopped caring about Gore, but Gore was still around. And I hope I have this album right, that they released a record, I believe it's called The Bloody Pit of Horror. It is so pissed off by Gore standards. You know, now, again, maybe I'm reading Nuance where Nuance isn't there, but it is their heaviest record. And it is a record where, you know, what? what's always interesting is when bands figure out a way to say fuck the world in the way that only that band can say fuck the world, you know, or, or fuck the people that have abandoned us or anything like that. That's what I was talking about with Living Color Stain. And that's what I'm talking about here with Gore. Because in Gore's case, they just talk about obliterating the entire planet. You know, they have a great line in there where Dave Brocky, a.k.a. Odorous, says, we'll kill every species, not just one or two, you know, <laughs> and it's uh, it's it's gore. But it's also, in my opinion, like I could do a fucking thesis on this thing. It's gore speak for we're still here and and you don't think we're relevant anymore. So we're going to release a record to an empty room that we don't even give a fuck about. And it's just mean, you know, so so gore did that. Living Color did that. Plenty of bands have done that. You know, Judas Priest did that with a record called Painkiller after they tried for commercial success and failed. And I had a few more examples stuck in my head, but the point is there. You know, these these bands, these people, comic artists that that made post-prime stuff and had it be cool, you know. Um, avid listeners of the podcast will know that I talked about the end of the first Firestorm run, actually the second Firestorm run, the one from the 80s, where around issue 65, it just started getting cool and things started resolving and things started getting more apocalyptic. And I think the reason is because at some point DC notified them the end is coming. And then they're like, oh, the end is coming. We can start to do some shit, you know? And they did that shit, you know? Um... Another run that's legendary and incredibly expensive to collect. So Scott, you know, I'm sure Scott's going to buy up all the issues by the time we have the next podcast is <laughs> the, the the last dozen or so issues of the first Marvel Transformers run when Simon Furman took over and just started doing I don't give a fuck stuff to the Transformers universe at the time. It's a very highly regarded run. I still haven't bought it because I've always been torn between this place of do I just punk out and buy the trades or do I try to buy the single issues, but I don't want to spend that much on an issue that I haven't proved. But um, again, the point is there. These things seem to somehow get discontinued and then people are like, oh shit, it's getting discontinued. I can do everything I ever wanted to do. And then you go from there, you know, so... I love that idea of artists just being set free by either their comic series getting canceled or by this almost seething resentment at the fact that they still exist and there's like an industry slash portions of fandom that have forgotten about them. Yeah, that's a that's a great, great topic for the week. Um, and I think for me, that's why I never really want to work for corporate comics. Like that's, that's not something I'm interested in doing. I'm not really interested in um, having to take orders from somebody on doing art or what story I want to do, what I want to draw. Um, that's the beauty of owning your own IP and creating your own characters and just doing what you want to do in the comic. Don't do something in a comic that you think other people would like. Do something in the comic that you would want to see, that you would want to read, that you would want to draw. And, if you do that, they will come, you know, like there will be someone out there that goes, Hey, this is fucking killer. And and if you think it's killer, if you draw your book, you write your book, 
you produce the thing, you go like, this is, this is fucking amazing. I, I really am proud of what I did here. There's going to be people out there that feel the exact same way when they read your book. They're going to be into that story. They're going to be into that crazy idea that you thought would never work. So, you know, push those boundaries when you're creating your comic books. Don't just follow the, you know, um, cookie cutter aspect of every corporate comic out there right now. Like, do your own thing. You know, put something interesting. Give that do not, I don't give a fuck attitude to your comic book. And that's going to shine through and it's going to be really interesting to read. Yeah, you know who else really became their own true person when they decided to stop giving a fuck what other people thought? Kobe Bryant. Kobe yeah. Bryant. And look, I, I know I'm dancing among some murky um, moral issues here with the issue of like a rape trial that almost happened, didn't happen, whatever. But like there was something about that cycle of events that made him realize, because if you look at Kobe before then, Kobe was someone who was like trying to be a people pleaser. He was trying to be like happy and bouncy. He did a rap record. I own a copy of that record because it fucking, it sucks. It's absolutely terrible. I have a, I have a 12 inch of KOBE by Kobe with sung by Tyra Banks. I got that name right. It's Tyra Banks singing the chorus songs. Horrible. (laughs) I'll, I, it's going to be, you're going to have to pry that record from my cold dead hand because it's an artifact. It's an artifact of someone who was trying to be what other people wanted him to be instead of trying to be himself. And at some point he, he was like, fuck it. I'm going to name myself after a lethal snake. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's who I really am. Who I really am is a hyper competitive person with the will to win. And the second he did that, people followed it. You know what I mean? Because it was like, oh, now I know who the real you is. You know, and, you know, agree or disagree morally with anything I just said. The point is the true person came out and a lot of people were gravitated to that. So I think the question that Scott and I might even have to workshop, because I'm, I'm not even going to pretend I thought it this far through, much less thought it through with 10% ABV in me, is how do you apply that to your comics? You know, and that's going to be something for you to decide. An answer I gave at a G-Fest panel a couple of years ago when someone was talking about the difference. I was on a panel with uh, Chris Mowry, Matt Frank, and Jeff Zorno. Uh, and we were talking about Giant Monster Comics. And all three of them were doing the comics for IDW. They were talking about Godzilla Comics. And somebody asked me the question, you know, why do you like doing indie comics? And I said, because I can kill whoever I want. You know, and that goes back to what you were just saying, man. You know, like we're we're God of our own universe here. And I'm not saying I'm going to kill whatever I want. You know, much like something is killing the children as a name title and those kind of long titles may be a passing fad or maybe the beginning of simply how we talk about certain titles. Um, killing everybody off was a fad for a while because Game of Thrones did it. And then everybody's like, oh, if Game of Thrones does it, then I'll just kill off every character and people will love me as much as they love Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's not quite that easy, you know? So just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. What it means is that you should stay true to whatever your vision is. And look, that's why people were drawn to Game of Thrones. And that's why people are drawn to other things because you're staying true to your vision. So when we say that little dollop of, of don't, I don't give a shit, I think what I'm trying to say there is figure out a way to channel 
the the post prime record in somebody the part where you know you're you're not giving a crap to some extent and incorporate that and and what we're really saying is don't play it safe don't don't play it safe don't play the market don't play the trends don't play anything play what you want to do and because there's a well-known adage i'm assuming it, it it's in other creative things but i know in music it was a big thing of don't try to follow the trend because by the time you get to that like it's it's already gone it's it's peaking now and it's gone so the best thing for you to do is stay true to yourself and hope that the trend meets you instead of you racing to meet the trend because guess what everybody else out there is trying to meet that same exact trend whatever it is grunge you know trip hop current hip-hop whatever it is those trends by peaking now they're already gone so you're dumb chasing them and the only thing that serves you the best thing that serves you is just being true to yourself think of it like a wave you know you're at a beach you um see the wave the peak of the wave at this and then it's like you being on the beach and seeing the wave coming too it's already too late you know, just because you see that the wave is rising, by the time you get to it, it's already passed you by. So it's best to just, you know, do what you're doing, get ready, put the strap on your ankle, get yourself out into the water in the position that you want to be in before you just start chasing waves. Um, and yeah, I think that's the best the best advice one can give when creating comic books. Don't just try to copy what's popular. And, and honestly... People can see through that. If it's not something you really care about, it's not something you're really interested in, people can see through it. And uh, they're just not going to get behind that type of product. You know, if you're doing something that you truly love and truly are invested in, um, they'll be able to see it. They'll be able to hear it, you know, going back to working conventions. When you talk about your your comic books, they'll be able to hear it. Um, you know, it's just like, I, I only have a couple of titles. I don't really have a lot of other books to push. Like I have the Accidental Alien Anthologies and Tales from the Mothership, which is another spinoff uh, anthology series. But beyond that, it's like I can pitch Second Shift and Wanderers, you know, till the cows come home because those are those are books that I believe in. So it's not a trend that I'm just following. Another thing is playing with the form. Playing with the medium of comics. It, it's like... Okay, we have a formula that was prescribed to us from previous generations of comic creators. They're the ones that go, okay, does this work? No, this works better. Okay, let's all do that then. That's where we get these rules of comic books. And I think this is an ongoing trend with me when we, when we talk about creating. It's like rules were made to be broken, right? You, you make these rules, you create these rules. Who are creating these rules? Other human beings. Are these human beings better than you? Are they the ones that allow you to, like, they tell you how to make your comic books, how to be creative? No, it's your job to understand the form and modify it if you can. Can you play with it? Can you change it? Um, and a good example is uh, another veteran creator, Barry Windsor-Smith's Monster. Uh, we were going over that, I believe, on the Christmas edition, and uh, as uh, we were talking about monsters, and there's, like, panels where they're going back and forth with the dialogue balloon. There are two panels next to each other. They're individual images. But the way he laid out the word bubbles, 
it made you go back and forth between those two panels. That's not something that is traditional. That's not something that's done very often, if at all. I've never seen it myself personally. But that was something as an older creator who just has been around comics and in comics for so long that he goes, I know how to create a back and forth panel moving back and forth through time as, as a reader uh, just by simply playing with the word balloons. And that's, that's creative as hell. And, and I'm not saying you need to reinvent the wheel here, but like, just think about that. Think about things that other people have done that you haven't seen done in a previous comic book and take that spin and, and, and or take that and spin it, you know, make it your own, do something different. Just try to uh, have something that sets yourself apart from everyone else. Yeah, man. In fact, you saying something reminded me, I'm going to show you this right now, and hopefully I'll remember to post this by the time the episode comes. And I may have mentioned this before, I can't remember. But in issue two of the first arc of Kadoja, I actually have a panel. There's a panel here. I'm going to show it to you. Uh, can you see that? Uh, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can see that that's a panel panel of, um, I believe her character is, yeah, Sandra Davis. She's on the phone and it's nothing but a long extended word balloon on one side of the conversation, right? A couple pages later, uh, I have Mercury Velez having a one-sided thing of the conversation, right? A very extended word balloon with tons of pauses, tons of beats. The fun thing to do is you can actually overlay them on each other and they fit together. So just a fun little thing where it was like, that was how it came to me in terms of writing it. And then I conveyed that to Rory, Rory drew it. And I think it's neat, you know, somebody's probably done it before, but I thought it was a fun thing to do because you get all of her end of the conversation. Then a couple pages later, you get all of his end of the conversation and you could actually overlay the word balloons and have the conversation work as a complete exchange. They, they physically fit together. You know, so those are the kind of questions that they you may not have that opportunity to do it all the time. But if you have opportunities like that and there's a way for you to push the form and more importantly, just like you be you, you know, do the thing you want to do, then uh, that's just a win for everybody. You know, if if you're trying to, to, to back back to the point of waves, trends, whatever. The second you try to catch a trend and try to catch a wave, you've deprived the world of the story that you are here to tell. And remember, there are no new plots. There are no new stories. There are no new ideas. There are only new voices and there are only new personal twists on every single story ever done. So keep that in mind as you're making your shit, you know, like, like it's your voice that people care about. Yeah. A fresh take on a story, something that, that's a little bit new, that's going to go a long way. But what what people are really here for is for the way you're telling the story as as opposed necessarily to be having their mind blown on some bland, brand new structure someone's never thought of before, you know? Absolutely. And, and actually, that, I didn't intend it to be a segue into the first thing I wanted to talk about. But... I'm going to go ahead and use it as a segue of the first thing I wanted to talk about, okay? I, right. as, you can, as you can see here, I'm holding up a copy of Full Bleed number two. This is the IDW magazine that's very similar to the Comics Journal. I'm going to read some lines to you, Scott, okay? And then we're, see, we're going to see if you can guess the creator, because I'm not going to, like, if I come across context clues, you can just figure it out, okay? Okay. Um, so here we go. Um, 
I'm, I'm quoting the same author. This is uh, excerpt number one. I don't know a lot about Scandinavian lore and vampires per se. Different cultures have rather different versions of vampires. I haven't really researched that yet. I just had ideas for these guys coming up and maybe sort of a narrowed point where they have to filter through that to get out. There's a house there. Wait, I don't know if we should give these ideas away here. The interviewer. Spoiler alert. This may or may not happen in some future issue. Creator. I also don't want to give someone else the idea. They'll steal it and use it before I get to it. I have some ideas for a female vampire that would get involved with Thor. I may do that. I may never do that. But I have a ton of ideas. A lot of them are short. Some of them, like that, are more elaborate. I also want to be able to start moving to get to the great enemies and start bumping these guys off. I have one more excerpt that I'm going to do, okay? So that's one thing. Um, And then I thought there was another really cool thing, if I remember right, right around here. So first of all, do you know who I'm talking about? Is it Barry Windsor Smith? No. Then, uh, Donnie Cates? Walt Simonson is the Walt person. Walt Simonson. That. God damn yes. it. That's so. I, you know what? I fucked up. Because I was like thinking Walt Simonson, but I said yeah. Barry Windsor Smith. Oh, okay. Th- because yeah, Thor. Me, yes. Thor is the giveaway. Yeah. Right. Thor is And the, especially the since giveaway. he now does a second Thor book called Ragnarok that's basically Thor again, just not in the Marvel world. So. This this Walter Simonson interview, it's like 14 pages long, okay? Mm. It's super in-depth, which is why I like Full Bleed and also why I like, like Comics Journal. You know, they just go super in-depth with these people. And I'm not kidding when I say the first eight pages of this interview were a slog, but I kept on going through it. And sure enough, I got to this gold. And when I got to that part that I just read, I was like, fuck, he's just like me. He's paranoid about stealing his people stealing his ideas. So like I feel a little like, hey man, Walt Simonson's my guy. He doesn't even want to mention these little half ideas in an interview on the chance that someone else picks it up and does something with them. That's actually that was my second guess. I was like, did they interview you? Because <laughs> <laughs> have you ever nice. have you ever seen Walt Simonson? Uh, I I saw him from ten feet away at San Diego Comic-Con like six years ago to sign a artist edition of some Thor shit, and I should have fucking got in line. I had never seen what he looked like um, or heard his voice. Uh, cartoonist Kayfabe ended up doing an interview with him. And if he doesn't look like fucking Jeff Bridges from Iron Man 1, like, it's so crazy. I was like, yeah. is it is that is that Warmonger? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Crazy, crazy. so uh, yeah, it, it's uh, kind of a trip. If you haven't heard it, you should you should listen to it, or you can listen to. It. I was gonna say should. Sure. I don't think sure. it's one of those must must uh, yeah. listen to episodes um, because maybe yeah. a little bit like that interview, it was a little tough to get through initially. It is, but then it there's is. like certain parts where he's more engaged, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay, yes. okay, you know, like the subject matter changes, and like, okay, I'm a little more interested in that. So right. Yeah, compare that to somebody like Alan Moore, who is an absolutely riveting ass interview in any context, you know. So, yeah, Simon's a little uneven. And I think some of that is because I get the feeling that people like defer to him. And just like in this interview in particular, the guy speaks for like a page at a time and no one's breaking him up. And you're sitting there wondering, why is no one stopping him right now? Probably because they don't want to like offend the the god, you yeah. know, like that kind of thing. And it's like, well, maybe you should have stepped in and gotten some clarifying questions instead of letting him kind of meander a little bit. But that's another story. Um, so another thing I wanted to mention about this interview, which I found fascinating, 
Uh, Walt Simonson then proceeds to say that his wife, Louise, wrote a Batman novel. So he starts talking about the idea of novels a little bit. Again, I'm condensing the interview, and I think I do, I'm doing just a fine job. And For our benefit. Novel- yeah, novels might be something that he's interested in, but he's not that interested in. And then he was talking about the form of the novel and whatever. And then he mentioned that in Louise Simonson's uh, Batman novel, it's like a Batman animated series adaptation or something, he ended up ghostwriting a chapter. And cool. it was a chapter with a fight in it. So uh, in in suitable Keith fashion, I proceeded to then buy it on eBay, and it's going to show up pretty soon. Because I want to read that chapter. I'm fascinated to figure out what chapter it is and then be like, oh, Walt Simonson ghost wrote this. It's the only novel stuff that Walt Simonson has ever written to date, you know? So anyway, just a fun little nugget. And here's another thing that ties more to just what we all do. The challenge of comics to me is that there are so many things you can do. You have to know how to draw anatomy. You have to be able to draw faces. You have to try gestures. You have to be an actor. You draw perspective. You have to be able to place characters in a 3D setting. You have to know something about fonts. You have to know something about typography, topography. The challenges are something I loved, I loved about it in the beginning. And you have the element of time to all that stuff. I just thought that was such an interesting way of capturing what it's like to just sign up for this gig. We all know that stuff, but to hear it, and to hear the diversity of things that you really have to be able to do to pull off a decent comic book, it's pretty amazing when you think about it, you know? So that was a cool way of putting it into focus and just another thing to mention out there to everybody, like, you're doing good work, man. You know, like, this shit is hard and this shit is complex and people like Walt Simonson continue to be mystified by it every day and look for new ways to create within the form every day and you should feel good about that. The the experts are still trying to figure out the form and master it. And I'm not sure it can, in fact, ever be mastered. The fun is in the trying. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if it was um, Steve Rude that said it to me or he read or said it in an interview because I've interacted with Steve Rude a few times at San Diego Comic Fest. It's super cool that he's around and he's very, uh, very much hands-on. Like uh, he actually sat down with me and he redrew... Like, he was looking, I, I brought him one of my issues, it was Second Shift uh, 8, and he goes, okay, you know, how can we make this look a little more dynamic, have the same pose, but, you know, tweak it, and, you know, however he said it. And so he basically redrew the cover to issue 8, and I was like, this is so amazing to me. And he was explaining exactly why he was doing what he was doing. He goes, look, if you do this, this this you know you could see the weight is being put on this hip and yada yada and what he had said that was just so interesting was that it can take a lifetime to understand the human form and it's just like you put that in perspective and it's just like that combined with what what walt simonson just said it's like crazy how much information that artist needs and has to develop in, you know, a certain period of time. They have to develop those skills in a very limited amount of time if you want to make a living off of this. If you want to be yeah. able to pay your bills, you're going to have to figure out all of those things in a very short period of time. But then you have the rest of your life to improve all those aspects, to try to become a master of, you know, the human form or composition, you know, all of those different aspects that come 
with drawing comic books. So um, it, it's just fascinating. And um, I don't know, man, it kind of energizes me when you think yeah. about it. It's totally. just like, I don't feel so I'm, I'm 41 years old. I don't feel like I have a time frame when I'm going to have to stop drawing comic books, you know, bar, exactly. bar me, bar me losing my hand, my drawing hand, you know, it's like, I could do this for the rest of my life, you know, mm -hmm. give me a giant grip. If, uh, you know, my arthritis yeah. is kicking in, throw some rubber bands around that bitch and let me just go to work. So, exactly. um, you know, there's time, there's time for everyone out there. So get out there, make your books and just study, you know, if, if Walt Simonson, you know, uh, Barry Windsor Smith, if these guys are still studying, still, you know, delving into mythology and all these different aspects at the age they are now and how long they've been in this game, you know, uh, who are we, who are we to stop learning? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, man, no, that, that puts a good period on the sentence that I was, I was building there. So let's, let's get a little silly. Yeah. Yeah, man. So when I listen back to podcast zero, the thing that cracked me up, right. Is that it was uh, what was it? November, 2020. And at the time, I think the Sixers had fucked up in the bubble playoffs, if I remember right. Like, they had gotten their balls stomped in the bubble playoffs. I mm. think, if I remember right, Simmons got hurt, and we got swept 4-0 by Boston in the bubble. So I was not in a great place. I was not in a great place. And you said, I hear the Sixers are looking to get James Harden. And I said, huh. I said, <laughs> They'd better not get rid of Ben Simmons for him. <laughs> How fucking great is that? And I said, if they do, I'm going to have to really reconcile my emotions. <laughs> or so in crazy. so many words, dude, I mean, that is, uh, that was November, I think of 2020. So that is, that is 18 months ago, roughly. And it's like how the world has changed, you know, like, and now you flash forward to, to the current state, which was my third thing that was going to be silly that I talked about, which is the Sixers with Harden look like basketball art, man. They look like basketball art. I know it's only two games in and the teams haven't been great, but the teams have been good. The Sixers have, you know, had a, a not so hard time with two somewhat okay teams, you know, and um, it's just crazy. You know, it's it's crazy to go back to that and think that, like, there was a time in my life where I was bummed that the Sixers at the prospect of the Sixers getting rid of Ben Simmons, you know, and then you actually said at the same time, you're like, you know, it also looks like Westbrook might be on the move. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Man? We're just like, <laughs> we're, we're predicting our future lives, except you didn't realize the misery that you were predicting yourself. for. Yeah, I didn't know he was going to be on the move to my team. Yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. Yikes. And a circuitous route. He made a connection somewhere else and then made his way to Los Angeles. Oh, you God. Know? Yeah, yeah, to wreck your life. To wreck um, my basketball life. Yeah, I know. I, I feel sad in a way because I want to text you about so much more shit because the Sixers have energized me and then I bought League Pass. Oh, yeah. And and now I'm watching, like, uh, on Sunday, dude, I watched four games. Oh, text was... Ed. Ed is wa Ed watches all basketball. So he's more like you in the sense that um, he, he, he'll he watch other – he'll go out of his way to watch other teams because he yeah. loves he, – he's a basketball fan first and a Lakers fan second. So okay. 
Um, yeah, so if you're watching some random ass game, text Ed. I bet you anything he's watching that same game. Yeah, he's so he's not gonna let the Lakers pee in his Cheerios, basically. No, 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 no. Yeah, they're yeah. they're just totally peeing in my Cheerios. Yeah, I hear you. Um, shit, what was I gonna say? Oh, okay. So I was having a conversation. I'm in a Lakers chat, and let me know what you think of this because I didn't agree with my buddy. Um, so okay. Everyone's talking about trade LeBron, trade Anthony Davis. And one of my buddies was just like, I couldn't even tell you if, if AD's our second best player, I couldn't tell you who's who's who which team has two superstars where their second best player is better than Anthony Davis. And I said, mm, probably the 76ers. You got Embiid and, and Harden. And I was like, but that's probably it. Like we're just talking their two best players. And he goes, well, I thought that too, but, you know, yada, yada, yada. I forgot what his point was. But uh, mine was like, well, honestly, um, it's about a few things for me. It's not just talent. It's like, okay, would you tr- would you trade AD for Joel Embiid? I, I would. Because AD is always hurt. He's constantly hurt. Um, he doesn't have a killer instinct. He's very soft, in my opinion. And uh, he's clearly a beta. Uh, Embiid is an alpha because he's had to be the alpha. He's had to be the man. And he already has the personality uh, of an alpha. Totally. Not only that, his availability, crazy enough, is better than Anthony Davis's. Yeah, somehow that happened. Right. And my my, my friend's point was, well, this season he's only been in 11 more games. But, like... the, the the season's what, 82 games? 11 games is a good amount of games. It's not yeah. a little. You know what I mean? Like 11 more than Embiid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not in the totality of the series or the season. But it's like 11 more than this other player that's known to be hurt all the time. And right. not to mention, Embiid is having a monster season. And he had a monster season last season as well. So yeah. he's he's on the rise where Anthony Davis, unfortunately, has leveled off, if not dropped. So... In my opinion, I would definitely take Joel Embiid over Anthony Davis. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. The the bone, so so for me, the angle of the argument there is not necessarily how many more games Joel Embiid has played. But, I, I mean, I'm going to say I've watched, what have the Lakers played, about 60-some games? Something yeah, like that. Something like that 50, yeah. High 50s, low 60s probably, right? Mm-hmm. I have watched, I'm going to say about a dozen, maybe a little bit more of Laker games. Maybe a little bit more like it's tough because I've turned some off because I'm like, Christ, even I don't want to watch this. You know, like like the Lakers are down 30. What the fuck? Why do I care? To the New Orleans Pelicans. Dude, I just turned that game off. I was watching it. It was the only game on. And I'm like, this is sad. I don't want to watch this. New Orleans is like bombing the Lakers. You know, what the fuck is going on? It looked like they were just it was like they were just playing with them. You know what I mean? (laughs) The New Orleans Pelicans were playing with them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, what the hell is going on? You know, so. I, and I think that's where you get to the fact that even if Embiid has only played in like fractionally more, even if you just take that argument and don't question it, Embiid's minutes matter. Embiid's possessions matter. Yes. AD disappears. AD waits for other people to pass in the ball and then does stuff sometimes, right? Sometimes. Where like Embiid, if you're watching a Sixers game, you know exactly what Embiid is doing at all times. Because Embiid, even if he doesn't get the ball... He is he is commanding the way the game is played because you're probably doubling him or you're avoiding driving at him. He just he has a gravity that AD doesn't have anymore. 
you know, and even mm-hmm. when they won the title, AD didn't have that gravity. LeBron had that gravity and AD made the plays because other teams chose to double LeBron, you know? So to me, it's about, it's just about impact on the floor and how he affects the game being played for the other nine people on the floor. And that's where I think Embiid is just, a, a, you know, a couple classes above AD, and especially this year. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I, I don't get to catch a ton of Sixers games, but when I do, like, it's clear that Embiid is dominant. And like you said, he has the gravity. He pulls other players towards him and that frees up his teammates, you know, shooters, yeah. drivers, whatever. So, yeah. yep. Yeah, I hear you. I just thought it was, I thought it was crazy. I was just like, yeah, that's dude. And and just, it's unfortunate. It's just some people have purple and gold, you know, covered lenses. Oh yeah. I used to make that joke with my buddy. I'm like, are you wearing purple and gold glasses? Is you're saying that? Cause I sure see him on you right now. (laughs) One of the guys in the chat made that joke. They were like, well, it doesn't matter who it is. As soon as they put a Lakers Jersey on, you know, the, and he goes, this, he thinks they're the the best things in sliced bread, essentially. Yeah, and I'm exactly, like, exactly. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're fucking right as hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're insane. <laughs> you know, so. Anyway, yeah. man, you got anything going on that you wanted to share? Um, did I get anything new? Did I get anything new? Um, how about you? Do you got something? Let me look at something. I'm I'm, well, I'm sure I bought this. things. Um, I'm gonna, I I I'm haven't gonna... bought much. I've I've waved a bit back into music so for me i've bought a couple i mean i could talk about music a little bit but like i bought a few records and and uh actually here's a good thing to mention i'm going to a show that that uh two nights from when we record this that is a band called ghost um so who a lot of metal and slight metal fans may may know of but yeah they're like they're like pop metal satanism they're they're really wild like they they have the catchiest things about satanic sacrifice that have ever been recorded and uh so they're that's that's a fun show and they actually have this band opening for them uh called Twin Temples that uh so I'm not going to say anything about Twin Temples other than they are they are like 1950s rock I don't know meets like latin music meets Amy Winehouse but about the devil. <laughs> they're really wild, dude. And and they're catchy and they sing all these catchy songs about like black mass and stuff like that, man. They're really crazy. So if that's not your jam, then it's not your jam. If it is your jam, they're right there on Spotify waiting for you. So um so yeah, I'm I'm gonna go to that in a night or two. So music's been kind of the straw stirring my drink. You know, like I've gotten into, I ordered some jazz records. I I caught up on a few death metal records that I hadn't got yet. So one of the reasons that I haven't been buying comics is because I've just been, you know, smitten by some some bands and smitten by some records that I wanted to make sure I added to my collection. Right on. Yeah, I, I'm not really collecting anything right now. I was just checking my uh, purchase history and there hasn't been a ton there. There's a couple there. But uh, I'm still on the hunt for things. So I'm not going to mention it here. But hey, if you guys yeah. got suggestions for uh, a graphic novel, hardcover art book or something like that. It doesn't have to be hardcover. A book, uh, an art book or something that's on Amazon. Uh, hit us up. Makingcomicspodcast at gmail.com. Or hit me up on my social media at Scott Lost. I got uh, about $30 in Amazon gift cards uh, on, my, on my Amazon account there. So I'm looking to buy something. Uh, I just, I'm, nice. I'm not sure what, I think I want something from Mobius maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you guys know a good Mobius book, uh, let me know and, yeah. uh, yeah, I'll give that a look. 
Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I forgot to mention this earlier in your um, dinosaur book thing, but it's cool that you're feeding your brain. You know, we've talked about this, right? Like that's the great intersection of something that's both entertaining and can fuel future creativity from you. And there's, look, there's no rule. Like you don't have to do that. You know, you can, you can read something that's purely entertaining um, I've, I've made a veiled reference to this before, and I'm going to make the same veiled reference again. There was a book that I read entirely for entertainment, and I was just like, screw it. I know that this is a stupid book, but I don't care. I'm going to read it because I want to read it. And God damn it, it ended up giving me an amazing idea. I think I may have talked to you about this offline, but uh, gave me an amazing idea that I ended up using in one of my stories. So uh, you just never know where inspiration is going to come from. But that said, it's always fun to have that thing that like not only interests you from a fan perspective, but can also fuel that creative brain of yours. You know, so helpful and, and such a great bonus. Absolutely. Um, yep. Yeah, man. So we should draw this to a close. Um, in terms of social media, you can find me at Keith underscore Invader on Instagram. Um, that is the majority of my posts now, and it covers all kinds of things. It covers Three Protectors, it covers Kadoja, and it covers just stuff I'm doing, stuff I might be reading, listening to, whatever. I still do post on at Kadoja Kaiju, but nowhere near as often as um, at Keith Invader on Instagram. So follow me there if you're not already. And you can find me at Scott Lost, S-C-O-T-T-L-O-S-T, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook.com forward slash Scott Lost. Yeah. And for this episode and maybe the next couple, hey, fuck my website. What matters is the Three Protectors Kickstarter on Kickstarter, man. Um, I'm excited about Three Protectors again, not to belabor the point. It is Kung Fu in space. I'm going to say that one more time. It's Kung Fu in space. And it harkens back to Shaw Brothers. It huge influences on the film are like the five deadly venoms ricky o and space operas so please go check out you know uh kickstarter check out three protectors volume one we have some killer tiers that already launched and by the time that this airs so we're going to do a three-week kickstarter for this i just talked to mike about that today instead of the usual two weeks just to give it another one week of window for people to possibly happen upon it and uh, and see what it's about and so what that means is when this airs um we're one week down and two to go so you still got some time but uh yeah man head on over there and uh and see if three protectors is for you and you can go to accidentalaliens.com to pick up my books uh, second shift the tale of minimum wage workers during the day and superheroes at night and Wanders of Melisanda, Anthropomorphic Dinosaurs versus Humans, A Thousand Years in the Future, We Start Colonizing Other Planets. And we come across the planet Melisanda, where the meteor never hit, so dinosaurs of that world survived and evolved. So if either of those books sound interesting to you, go to AccidentalAliens.com. You can pick them up digitally, or you can get physical copies sent to you at a very reasonable price. Uh, AccidentalAliens.com. Hey, you bastard. You didn't, you didn't let me have my line. Does it ever work out, Keith? It never works. It never works. It never works. But you know what does? Going to makingcomicspodcast.gmail.com and letting us uh, letting us know what works about this show. And yeah. uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, other ideas, show topics, something we haven't covered that you want us to cover, makingcomicspodcast.gmail.com. Yeah, man. And of course, on the subject of podcasts... There are many five-star reviews out there for the world to give us, and you can be the next one to give us one of those things. So Apple Podcast, go there, throw us a great review, throw us some nice words. We really do appreciate it, and, uh, and it really does keep us 
fueled in our battle against the goddamn algorithm gods. And that's what we all want. We want to defeat the algorithms once and for all and bend them to our whim because they work for us, motherfucker. We don't work for those algorithms. That's right. Uh, algorithm of God, wrath of God. I fucked that up. That's my fourth. That's my fourth volume title now. Algorithm of God, wrath of God. <laughs> I think that's perfect. It is. I, think that's, yeah, I, I stand I, by it. I stand. I think by that's it. amazing. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think, I think I've queued up the music by now. I would have had to, right? Like, I think my future self's already queued this up. So, uh, another good week in the books, my man. And, um, and uh, for all you people out there, we will see you next week. Yeah, yeah.